From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. So number one, I think making sure not just to pay lip service, the worst thing you can do is pay lip service to employee well-being, saying that we're going to incorporate, you know, breaks or, um, you know, uh, uh, quiet spaces or not require people to, you know, to, to be on an electronic leash or be available after hours. Don't say that and do something completely different. That's Christina Haxton, CEO and founder of the Center for Sustainable Strategies, talking about the importance for managers to communicate with employees and to support them when they need time to recharge their batteries. We're gonna hear more from Christina in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Zoll Data Systems AR, optimization solutions for healthcare. The Zoll AR Boost Solution Suite increases revenue from payers and patients in compliance with the No Surprises Act, while reducing front-end workload and freeing up staff for higher value activities. Zoll AR Boost tools find, verify, and correct patient demographic and payer information to reveal patients' unique financial characteristics and improve self-pay conversion. Visit zolldata.com slash ARBoost to learn how you can ensure no payments are left on the table. Our guest today is Christina Haxton, CEO and founder of the Center for Sustainable Strategies. Christina is here today to talk about the five factors of employee burnout and how to avoid them. Well, Christina, thanks so much for joining us on the MGMA Insights podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, to talk about this topic today. I appreciate you. Great. Now, just for our listeners, you are currently the CEO and founder of the Center for Sustainable Strategies. Talk about that for a minute. What is the organization's purpose? What do you guys do? Uh, so basically, we work with small to mid-sized enterprises and organizations, privately held companies, um, to help keep people problems from being profit problems. Okay, that sounds like a, a pretty good plan. We need that in this uh, pandemic era that we're in. So um, in looking at your resume uh, found on LinkedIn, where I am able to research all sorts of things, Um I saw that you have several decades of experience in a lot of capacities as a, an executive coach, as a leadership consultant. First of all, what, what led you to this field? What, what was the inspiration there? Oh, gosh. Um, just to keep it succinct, um, one of my first real jobs, <laughs> in fact, I was still in, uh, I think I was getting my master's degree at the time was working with people who learn differently. So neurodiverse folks um, to help them integrate into the community and into the workplace. Um, so to help them work better with their, uh, their peers and help their managers understand how they communicated and how they, um, you know, how to help them be successful in the workplace. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing that still <laughs> in many ways. Um, but it was interesting because a lot of the, the information that I would I would give the coworkers or their manager um, 
it really had to do with about their people, their people and, and need to be communicated with like people mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and almost irregardless in some ways, irregardless of, of their challenges emotionally or physically. Um, but some of the very same strategies I was teaching these em- employers, they would tell me, oh my gosh, you know, I actually approached, you know, my other staff or my team with that. And they really responded really well. And, you know, these were things I was using as a therapist mm-hmm. um, or a therapist in training at this point. Um, and it, it was, to me, it was kind of not so much common sense, but it was kind of common sense, common courtesy, um, ways of communicating to, to resolve conflict and to, to work through problems. And, and, um, and so they were strategies that were pretty universal. So that's how that, that started. And I guess, the next touch point, I think, for me was um, in private practice in 2008. Um, I was working with a lot of um, really burnt out executives, CEOs. Uh, they were burnt out because of everything that was going on in the economy at that point in time. Some of them were sure had chosen to retire. Some of them hadn't chosen to retire, and and. And as a result, they were really at a crossroads um, in their careers, in their life. Um, so that, that had a really big impact on them. And so working with them, some of them as a therapist um, and some of them as an executive coach working on like how to build another business. I worked with a lot of serial entrepreneurs who wanted to do it differently in their next chapter, having learned the lessons um, you know, of, of you know, being workaholics or perfectionists and, you know, um, and all the devastation from a relationship standpoint, from a physical health and mental health standpoint. And I just remember thinking, you know, it just doesn't have to be this way. Um, that I think because we spend more time at work than we do at home, a lot of people really connected to, you know, what their purpose was, their impact was, what difference they were making in the world through their role as a CEO or as a manager or as a director. And I thought, gosh, that's misplaced <laughs> because as we know, those roles don't, you know, we don't have those roles our whole lives. So, um, so my master's thesis was actually on how to build a values-based business. Okay. Um, which I did, you know, myself and my business partner at the time did very successfully at a very successful counseling practice for 10 years. Um, and so teaching those things that I learned to help me become more sustainable, meaning built to last. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could teach, I can teach those clients um, how to do so as well from a kind of a building yourself as a leader up in, from the inside out and then building a company a values-based company from the inside out, building a team from the inside out. And, and, and so that's, that's how I landed here. Okay. That is wonderful. Thank you for sharing all that. And you hit a lot of the touch points that we're going to talk about today. I mean, burnout and just all the stress associated with uh, life in general and, and careers in specifically And so, as you know, I mean, staffing has just become an incredible challenge and an issue across all industries, and in particular in healthcare in recent years. Um, One of the ways that's been impacted even more recently has been with the great resignation. I know that term gets thrown out a lot. So just help us understand then what, what is the great resignation? Mm-hmm. And I like the way you said, what is it? Because we're not done yet. <laughs> yeah, you know, I remember, true. I remember seeing the cover of, um, 
Harvard Business Review, I don't know, maybe 2019. Do you remember this? And it says, and it talked about the great resignation, okay. the great tsunami. The, oh, the yeah, that's it. The turnover yep. tsunami. Remember yep. that? And yep. I remember reading that going, it's about damn time <laughs> that we, we knew this was coming well before that. Mm-hmm. And nobody was listening. Everybody had, it seems like everybody had their head in the sand. Um, and so obviously with the, the, you know, we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic in the next 12 months. Um, but, but basically, I think about the great resignation. Um, it, it was a culmination of people who were tolerating toxic cultures, tolerating bad bosses, Mm-hmm. tolerating being um, mis- miscast in their roles, um, not being able to use their strengths, being overworked, not given the resources. I mean, so it was a culmination of a lot of things. And uh, I think the pandemic was just, you know, uh, the, the tipping point when people really had to step back and realize, you know, some of their universal beliefs, like, you know, everything's fine, everything's great, if you're positive, we're moving forward, nothing bad can happen to us. People really got set back on their heels. And I mean, mm-hmm. everybody, this didn't not touch one person, unless you were a Sherpa helping people climb up Mount Everest, I don't right. know, not, right. but maybe it did. So, um, and so I feel like it, it's kind of like the great, the Boston Tea Party, it kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of that revolution. Um, and then the millennial generation kind of came along and said, we're not going to take it anymore. And they actually basically said, you know, this is what we see is wrong. There is an elephant in the room. Um, and we're, they put a voice to what all of the previous generation, I think, was tolerating. Because there's a saying, we get what we tolerate. It's very true, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I, I, I feel like it kind of started, kind of started then with that generation. It just kept rolling. Mm-hmm. Um and then obviously the pandemic, I think helped a lot of people sit back and go, you know what, we don't have to do, we don't have to work the same way we've been working. Um, right. and, and, and I think kind of reset their, and got clear on their values and what was important to them and what they really needed. We spend more time at work than we do at home, to be honest with you. And so, yeah. um, there's very little reason why we can't find joy and satisfaction and, and success at work. And so many people realized they were not. Um, so they voted with their feet, you know, so, I, but I think that the, the, the bottom line is those, those companies that really, that th- even thrived through the pandemic or survived the pandemic and they're still going strong. Those companies had healthy cultures. Um, and I know culture feels like a big word, like we're grabbing jello when we talk about culture, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of aspects to it. But I feel like the companies that didn't um, or had a toxic culture, they did not survive and they won't, they still won't, con- will continue to mm-hmm. not survive through what's coming next. Okay. Well, when you talk about culture, you know, there's the organizational culture, but then there's that mini, that smaller culture that gets created by, you know, a direct manager. Mm-hmm. Um, you sent me an email earlier about, let me get the quote right here it was a study you saw people don't leave bad jobs they leave bad managers there have been a couple of um movies comedies that have come out in the last decade or so called bad bosses it even had Mm -hmm. a, a sequel to it so there are lots of different types of bad bosses but i just want to break that down a little bit what makes a manager good and what makes a manager 
bad? And, you know, what can organizations do to that to give managers the tools they need to succeed and be on that good side of the ledger? Absolutely. Well, to do that, I'd like to do a little demonstration. Can I do that? Can you, will you be my guinea pig? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So for just a second, uh, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about your worst boss. Okay. Okay. I may start crying. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people do. When I do this, when I teach workshops, a lot of people really do. Now, um, open your eyes. Tell me what, what made that manager your worst boss? Yeah, this particular one um, really seemed to thrive, get a, get a kick out of belittling the subordinates was mm -hmm. constantly putting them down. And um, that was just from a, I don't know, just kind of almost on a personal basis, you know, just this sort of locker room mentality, but there was that. So that was one piece of the puzzle that made this partic particular person a very bad boss. The other part was, which wasn't a personal thing uh, on a personality side, but was just, I think it was more of a survivalist mode. This person kept everything in their own mind and didn't share the information with everybody else. So hey, what if that person leaves? What if something happens? Um, we're not equipped to even take on these roles. And so they didn't share the information. They kind of kept it all bound up and, and held up. So those were the two real, I don't know, traits that made this person a particularly bad boss and just not a lot of fun to be around. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, Dan, I'm I'm not cruel, so I'm not going to leave you there. Thank so let's you. do one more. Let's do one more. So I want you to close your eyes again, and I want you to think about your best boss, the ones that you say, like, I'd follow this person to the ends of the earth if I could. Okay. okay. And I can't help but notice the, the, the expression on your face that's different Sure. About the best boss and the worst yeah. boss. Now, go ahead and open your eyes and tell me yeah. what were one or two things that this the best boss did differently. Yeah, it's just so easy to identify. Um, there, I, there were a couple of different faces that all popped up in my mind when my eyes were closed, and they had some common traits, and those were empathy, first of all, and an inclusiveness. Uh, by that, just kind of even if you had a team uh, for these people, um, even uh, some of the staff members might not work on all of these projects, but they would have regular staff meetings, regular check-ins, and just kind of include everybody on, hey, here's what we're doing. This part may not, you may be over here and this, you may not work on this, but I want you to know what's going on. And I want you to feel like part of this team. And I want you to explain why we're going to be doing these particular strategies and these processes. So they were very inclusive in that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you just hit on just about all five. So uh, I just did a presentation for another organization, a workshop, if you will, um, around uh, employee me mental health and well-being and what can managers do. Um, and just to highlight that the, the the five factors uh, that correlate to employee burnout, for example, from a manager standpoint, and you mentioned, all, I think all five of these, whether they're doing or not doing. And so one is unfair treatment at work. 
whether people perceive unfairness or they it, it, it is other people, everybody per perceives favoritism, for example, unfair treatment at work, um, unmanageable workload, which, you know, we're seeing a lot of that right now. Uh, and but a lot of times managers don't realize what's on people's plates. In fact, I just got off a call with another client and we talked about, you know, um, he wanted to uh, to be able to take on another initiative, another opportunity for his team. And I said, what are you going to have? What are they going to stop doing? <laughs> like, like you have to answer that question. What are they mm -hmm. going to stop doing? So reprioritizing priorities, being clear about priorities between the manager and the employee, like you said, communicating, you know, we cannot possibly think loud enough for other people to hear us. And I'm sure, pretty sure we, we, we under communicate. So over communicating those checking in frequently, right? Unclear communication from managers. Does the bubble above the manager's head match the bubble above the employee's head? How does the manager check in and check it out? And there's certainly some communication strategies to do that. Lack of manager support. Some managers like to let their people be independent. Some people can make, you know, the two hands off a manager, right? There's also two hands on a manager. Um, and then unreasonable time pressures um, from managers. So those are five top factors that correlate with with uh, people leaving. Um, and obviously the opposite of those would be how to keep good people. Okay. That is great. And that really plays into the next question. Cause I know that you do have a background in uh, mental health and in psychology and in counseling, as well as the coaching side and the consulting side that you do. So I really want to drill down on what is the great resignation done to the mental health of people. And I know part of that, I guess, I don't know how you unpack it. Maybe you can help explain, but the pandemic in general has put so much stress mentally and emotionally on people. So I'm not sure. Let's look at it this way then. The great resignation, if you've got a staff of 10 and five of them decide to <laughs> resign or, you know, move on into other pastures there, suddenly the burden is left on those who are left behind. Yes. Uh, if you don't mind looking at it from that perspective, what has that done to the mental makeup, the emotional well-being of those who are left still forging ahead, trying to do the best job they can? Yeah, that's a great question. And unfortunately, the news is terrible. Um, it is dramatically increased. And I would say dramatically, and I don't want to make up statistics, but significantly increased the levels of reported anxiety and depression. Uh, of suicide, of substance abuse and dependence. Um, and, and that actually has also fed um, attrition, uh, lost productivity, um, and, and it works. So it's a, it's a terrible downhill spiral that we're seeing um, on, on that front. Um, it's interesting, we did a survey, we did the survey, but we, we replicated a survey that I believe um, Deloitte did. And we asked, um, oh, we, we asked maybe 25 to 30 CEOs, uh, they asked 2,100. Um, to what extent do you feel like you're addressing employee well-being? Um, and we defined well-being in terms of financial well-being, work-life balance, social connection, you know, some of the, we've defined the factors. How, to what extent do you feel like you are doing a good job addressing employee well-being in the new, kind of in the new workplace setting? Um, 
56% of employees we, we surveyed said that their company's executives cared about their well-being. 91% of the C-suite said that they believed um, their employers, uh, their employees believe they care about it. So that's a big gap between how, you know, executives see or the leadership sees how they're doing and the employees see how they're doing. Sometimes it's a huge disconnect and sometimes it's, they're just missing the mark. Mm -hmm. um, so when we go in and do discovery phases, which includes assessments and stakeholder interviews, and we really find out what do your people believe? What do they perceive? How are they experiencing this? Um, and then we aggregate that information and we give it back to leadership with some recommendations because sometimes they're doing things, but they're not doing the right things. Why? Gosh, well, it may or may not be because they haven't asked. So, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of companies do employee surveys, but they actually don't really do them well enough or do them correctly. And then they don't know what to do with the data if they even get good data. As you know, being MGMA, right? Data is important. Factual. Oh, yeah. So they have to make decisions on, on what they're going to change policies, procedures, processes, systems um, to, to be able to support what, you know, uh, what is needed and what will have an impact. Okay. Okay. That is very helpful. What I want to do for a final thought here is I really want to pick your brain here and <laughs> have you just share with us if you have any resources or a tool, anything that can help. Um, our listeners who might want to know more about just out of curiosity or for their own uh, health and well-being um, about how the great resignation has maybe impacted them and their teams. And if they want to look at it from a solutions-based standpoint, what can they do? Maybe there are some tools out there or some guidelines you could help people with to help them move forward and not just try to get through the day, but actually, you know, enjoy the day again, <laughs> get back to enjoying our lives and our, our workspace and everything else. Absolutely. Well, I'll start very granular and something people can use right away and then maybe get a little more broad. So number one, I think making sure not just to pay lip service, the worst thing you can do is pay lip service to employee well-being, saying that we're going to incorporate, you know, breaks or, um, you know, uh, uh, quiet spaces or not require people to, you know, to to be on electronic leash or be available after hours. Don't say that and do something completely different. Don't be hypocrites, you know, whether leadership shouldn't be a hypocrite about this, you know, taking time off, making sure that people can take time off and they meet with their manager to say, make sure that I can feel comfortable taking time off. I think, you know, like 27% of the people last year just used their, and maybe some of that was pandemic related, couldn't really have any place to go. But even now people just traditionally don't use their time off. Let's figure out how managers can help support people taking time off, whether it's a breaks during the day that they are taken and they insist they're taken, but then some of the workload needs to be reduced or changed so that people don't stress out about taking a break or taking a day off, okay? Um, so that would, I, I think just from that standpoint, um, a couple of good, really good resources people can use. And I know some of the companies that we work with have invested in is, a, is an app called Headspace. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You're familiar with that? Oh, I mean, yeah, definitely. Right. I mean, just even making that available to employees and, and showing them, having them use it, maybe doing a, you know, starting with a five minute meditation before and all, you know, before a meeting, for example, just, you know, putting things into practice. Don't just talk about it, do it. Okay. Um, so that's kind of a little bit more granular. Walk your talk and, and, and put some of these opportunities, give people the time and resources that they need to, to be able to implement these. Show them how to do it, do it with them. Leadership needs to go first. Um, and the next thing I'd say is, is invest in your managers just as much as you do your leadership. I mean, people invest in, in executive coaching and, and, and professional development for people at the director level and above. And I gotta tell you, managers have always been the ones that just get the short end of the stick when it comes to that. I've gotten several calls recently from, from companies who want me to, to support them and help them develop a really true, robust, baked into their organization development for their managers, right? So it's leadership development for managers um, and as people, right? So they can not just help themselves put their oxygen mask on first, but be also be able to, to have coaching conversations with their employees so that they can retain good employees. You know, how to have some of these difficult mental health conversations with your employees without feeling like you're the therapist or overstepping bounds. So I think investing in, in those is, is, is definitely a wise investment. From an individual standpoint, people want that growth opportunity. They want to be invested in, they want to feel cared about and that they matter enough to be able to offer them resources and time to be able to uh, improve, you know, in, you know, professionally, um, so that they can rise to. A lot of people have been, in, you know, a lot of people have been promoted from within, and they're good at the technical aspect of their job, but they've not yet got the experience or the skills to manage other people and lead other people. So I think that would be something else. And obviously, if we can help with that, you know, we do offer customized programs, one-off programs, as well as um, lengthier programs for for companies to to look at. Bosses coach. Um, you know, uh, a type of thing, increasing resilience uh, is another emotional intelligence has always been a, a really common topic. So I'd say invest in your managers um, to develop them from the inside out so that they can, um, so that they can be effective leaders and people want to, to, uh, to be able to stay on because just like you, you cared about that, that, that good, the best boss you had, right? right. And that's right. what will keep people um, as well, very much so. Maybe much oh. more so than a raise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is great insight, uh, Christina. So thanks so much for joining us here today and, and sharing these thoughts uh, with us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Christina Haxton. Christina is CEO and founder of the Center for Sustainable Strategies. We also want to thank Zoll Data Systems for sponsoring this week's show. The Zoll AR Boost Solution Suite increases revenue from payers and patients in compliance with the No Surprises Act while reducing front-end workload and freeing up staff for higher value activities. Zoll AR Boost Tools find, verify, and correct patient demographic and payer information to reveal patients' unique financial characteristics and improve self-pay conversion. Visit zoldata.com slash ARBoost to learn how you can ensure no payments are left on the table. 
Also, registration for MGMA's Medical Practice Excellence Leaders Conference is now open. The conference is this October 9th through the 12th, so register soon and don't miss this opportunity to learn and advance your career. Head to mgma.com events to learn more. And if you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. And to access all of our podcasts, go to mgma.com slash listen. And if you want to add to the conversation or suggest experts for us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at mgma.daniel. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.